Well, as Ian said, we're going to be reading together from Colossians 1 and reading um, this, this great prayer, really, the, the great prayer hymn about Jesus. It's uh, Colossians 1, uh, verse 15. Um, and for those of you who have not been with us up till now, um, we're working our way through Colossians. The idea of being a growing church, what do growing churches look like? What do growing churches need to keep their eye on? What do growing churches need to be aware of? And um, today is Paul bringing this church really back into saying, one of the things you've got to do is you keep, keep, I mean, it sounds so obvious, you've got to keep your eye on Jesus. It sounds so remarkably, remarkably obvious, but you've got to keep your eye on Jesus. And um, we're going to pick it up from the piece we were reading last week, which is from verse 9, and then I'll read through to verse 23. So we get, kind of get it all in a context. He said, for this reason, Paul, in verse 9, was really thinking about how he prays for this church in Colossae. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that's being proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. There are a few things in life that get better with middle age, but one of them is, in my experience, and when I say middle age, I'm 54 this year, so I'm gonna live till 108, I'm just in middle age. Is that you actually grow, you sort of, you, you allow yourself, I don't know if this is true but, of you, but you kind of, I think what happens is you allow yourself to admit the frailty of getting older. So a year ago, I didn't admit that my sight was actually deteriorating. So what I would have to do was then take my glasses off to read because the, suddenly the, the, the font in the Bible got smaller. I don't know what happened. 
but I couldn't see it as well. And I, I kept doing this business, and I could imagine myself going into older age with a chain with glasses around, which was not a look I was ever imagining I would find myself wanting to adopt. And so right now, the glory of middle age is I only need one pair of glasses, and I don't need to take them off because they're very focals. They're brilliant. I don't know why I didn't try them before. And uh, this is how very focals work. Uh, this is the standard one. I got the premium one, but this is standard. Um, and um, I only, I, to be honest, because the, the woman at Boots just talked so quick, I just said, yes, I, I, get, I get out of my depth in these sort of situations, and I felt I'd been mugged by the time I'd left. They cost so much. But she explained to me very quickly, and, and, and in a way that I kind of just believed, that uh, it, these glasses, that they would... Um, if that was the lens, then on the side, there would be peripheral distortion, which didn't sound so great, but she said it was a good thing. Um, but the point was that I could see near and distance at the same time. Ah, my whole life could change. Just by a slight tilt of the head, which uh, some of you will have experienced. And, and some of you are going, I don't need to know this. You do need to know this, Hannah, because one day you will be middle-aged. But... Um, it, it happens to the best of us, and uh, just a slight tilt of the head, and suddenly things come clear. When I was reading this passage, I, <laughs> for reasons that may not actually be clear to you, but were it when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about very focals and about the way you see life around you. When Paul wrote to this church in Colossae, a little town, little market town, he was actually in prison. And um, he was writing this letter from prison. At the end of uh, the letter, he says, remember my chains. And uh, people suggest that not only was he in prison, but actually this imprisonment, which probably was in Ephesus, something happened to him in this context that was so bad that when he reflected on it later, when he was writing to the Corinthians in what we know as 2 Corinthians, he said, when I was in that situation, things were so desperate for me, I almost gave up on life. I kind of just wanted to die. It got so, things had happened to me. And in different places, he would talk about this sentence of death that he'd felt and this deep depression that he got into. And in other times, he would talk about being attacked by by lions in Ephesus. It's kind of like really graphic language of just feeling like they was really suffering. Sometimes when you're going through times like that, it's kind of like it's really difficult to do this thing of being able to see two things at the same time. So what happens is some people go, I can only see Jesus when this situation gets sorted because at the moment that situation is so so, so in my vision that until that situation changes, I can't think about anything else. And what Paul does, interestingly, while he's struggling with this depression, with he's feeling under intense pressure, he's able to write to the Colossians who also are going through their own pressures and go, actually, I want you to be able to do two things. I don't want you to deny what's happening to you because that's the way some Christians deal with stuff, isn't it? They sort of want to deny anything's bad's happening, and everybody else around them is going, you're just in denial. This is not, it's not true. And Paul says, no, actually, you can face the worst you've got and face the fact that Jesus is still Lord in the same way as that lady in boots told me 
that one pair of specs, not two, one pair of specs enables you to see two things really clearly at the same time. And I think what Paul does in his letters is trying to do those two things. And I don't know if that actually makes any sense as an analogy, but it's kind of like the idea of being able to, I'm not needing to deny what's happening right now, and at the same time saying, Jesus is Lord. I'm holding the two things together. The truth is, there's never been a perfect time to be a Christian. There's never been a perfect stage in life to be a Christian. There's never been a time, actually, in the church's history where the church has said, you know what, it is so easy to follow Jesus right now. And I suspect there's never been a time in your personal life when it's been really easy to follow Jesus. There's, you know, that sort of moment, and some of you do get it, you know, because you tell me. It's like, things are going really well, and you go, I'm just waiting for it to all go wrong. <laughs> Actually, there's all, if, you know, sometimes depending on what you can see, there's always a moment where you go, do you know what? Right now is not that easiest time to follow Jesus. But that's okay. It's not that you failed. It's not that God's let you down. It's actually that there's an ability to see two things at the same time. The lordship of Jesus and the reality of life. When we talked about uh, the church in Colossae when I began this series, there are three things uh, just to remind you about that they were facing. This little group of Christians in this um, place in Turkey called Colossae, they were facing a culture that was full of kind of what we would call new age, pagan religions, lots of different ways of having religious experiences. Colossi was this place with lots of different ways of having religious experiences. It was also a place where uh, some Christians were going, uh, it's all right to be a Christian, but there's certain rules you've got to follow. And they were kind of like bringing back in sort of Jewish food laws or ways. Of, there's always people, there's always some people who want to go, it's all right, it's, it's nice that you're following Jesus. It's, that's very good, but uh, it's not quite good enough, is it? There's always some Christians who are really just itching to make you feel slightly guilty. And uh, certainly there were some Christians like that in Colossae. And then, of course, they were surrounded by the Roman Empire. And it was really difficult in that context to be worshipping Jesus and keeping a clear vision of Jesus at the same time as being aware of what's going on. So how does Paul do it? Well, as Ian said, what he does is he talks about Jesus. And as Ian said, it probably was a hymn. Um, Probably written before Paul was writing. So what Paul's done is he's got this hymn and inserted it into his own letter. And it's a way of reminding people about who Jesus is. The church has always sung its theology. We're actually always best when we're singing what we believe. And there's lots of reasons for that. Essentially, the, the church is a singing organization. <laughs> All right? We might not be very good sometimes, but we're a singing organization. And um, in the earliest church, it was clear what was going on, was that you would sing hymns, psalms, and songs. Kind of seems to be that sort of, um, the way they broke up. 
And as far as we can tell, nobody's really quite sure, but as far as we can tell, it is pretty much as they sound. The Psalms were probably the Psalms from the Old Testament that were then put through that prism of who's Jesus. And that's why when they, so many of the Psalms are used, because now they're going, ah, Jesus was, that's Jesus. Psalmists never realized, but that's Jesus. And the sort of songs of praise. And then these hymns were probably hymns that were doctrinal. So the other place you might look if you wanted to know about this was in Philippians. Do you remember that? In the middle of Philippians where he says, your attitude should be the same as Jesus. Who? Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but made himself love. And so it goes on. And it's kind of like a hymn. It's a poem. And you've got the same going on in Timothy. You've certainly got some of the same things going on in Revelation. And it's kind of like these hymns were ways of singing to one another. Now, and then the songs, and I'll come to songs in a minute. But the, the, this idea of singing was you would sing to one another. Now, the, the, in our tradition, because partly because of the way we're, we're all facing the front, we kind of all... <laughs> we sing to Ian. In our context, it's kind of like we're all doing it as individuals. But actually, this idea of, of singing hymns, that stuff we were singing this morning, you're really singing to one another. And nudging each other and going, that's, that's who Jesus is. And so you're building one another up. And this hymn fits in the same context. And then you've got these songs. Probably songs of the Spirit. Songs that were much more spontaneous. But this was one of the hymns, and this is how it begins. Now, all I want to do this morning is just very quickly, very briefly, just go through it, almost line by line, as, as unimaginatively as that, to remind you of who this Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus didn't just point people to God, but Jesus demonstrated what God is like. If you want to know what sort of God you've got, the answer is, it's exactly the same as Jesus. The perfect reflection, the perfect image, the perfect likeness. Sometimes when you're talking with uh, folks who aren't Christians, you get into arguments about God. And that's a really difficult place to get yourself into. When you're, um, when you're arguing about God, it's sort of like, the problem is God's so slippery, isn't it? And everybody's sort of got an idea about God, and you argue about God, but hey, as New Testament believers, you don't need to argue about God in the random or the abstract. I think it's quite okay sometimes to say, do you know what, I don't really fully understand God, but this is what I do know. I know what Jesus is like. Another sort of Jesus-shaped God we've got. Because when Jesus came, he's like the perfect image of the invisible God. That image of God, it reminds you of Genesis where Adam's created in the image of God, the one who reflects perfectly this creation. And Jesus comes. And Paul will want to argue this lots of times. He'll say, and Jesus was like this perfect Adam. You want to know what God's like? You want to know what God's interested in? You want to know who God hangs around with? You know, want to know who God's got a heart for? Look at Jesus. Who did he spend time with? What did he do? What did he talk about? What's really important to him? That's the God we've got. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. I'm sorry if this is too small for you at the back, but I do know a good optician you can go to. In him, in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. That's a massive statement. Everything owes its existence to God, but in Christ, all things were created. Everything you can see, everything you can see, and the stuff that you can't see, the subatomic particles, all created by God through Christ for him. And interestingly, all the powers, the things in heaven, the thrones, the powers, the rulers, the authorities, nothing is independent of Christ. So don't write things off. Don't write things off. The thrones, the powers, the authorities, the stuff that in our society, we've been rocked for the last 15 years with a sense that you can't trust anybody now. Everything's been shaken in our society, from politicians, through the police, through the church, through education, through health. There's almost like nothing. And Paul in Colossians reminds us that actually all of this. So when we pray, we pray for that these institutions might be for the purpose of God. Whether it's multinational companies or whether it's the systems in our state, all of them, God, we want you, we want them to be used by you. I'm not going to write it off. All of things were created. They've been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him. All things hold together. It's sustained, we are sustained, and we are upheld. All of God's creatures are upheld because he is holding them together. So persevere, don't, don't give up hope. He's the head of the body, which is the church. And it's not like, He's the head of the body and the church. Well, it's kind of like that stuff you do on Sunday morning. No, the church is the body of Christ. It's the first fruit. It's the people of the resurrection. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. We, people of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, on the least level, it means that we believe that this life is not all there is. It means that actually together we have a security about life now and life for everlasting. It means that actually together we look, the worst thing that can happen, I guess, or one of the worst things that can happen, is when you're told this could end in death. As people of the resurrection, we go, that is not the worst thing that could be given me. For we're people of the resurrection. Firstborn among the dead, that's Jesus. He's the one who leads us on. And so we live this life with joy. 
And secondly, because we're people of the resurrection, it means that where we go, we want to say, actually, things don't, end, don't have to end in tragedy. It's why we can be people of hope. It's why you go into situations and go, do you know what, folks? It doesn't have to end as tragedy or farce. For Christ is the head of the body. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. We're going to go in as people of hope into families that have been fractured for so many years and say, it doesn't have to end like this. Into lives that are so broken and we, ha- and we can say it to one another, it doesn't have to be like this. In situations where there's only bleakness and you walk in and you go, do you know what? I don't know how this will end up, but I'm a people of the resurrection. I believe in the God who knows the way out of the grave. I believe in resurrection. And then finally, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All of God's fullness was in Christ. All of God's fullness was in Christ on the cross, where the cross reconciles all things. Through Christ, all things come back under the headship of the Father. All things are the Father's. Now, of course, that means, still means that people can reject that, but actually God has brought all things back to himself through Christ. The reason people suspect very strongly this is a hymn, just very quickly to tell you, is because these sort of, this three, top three, seems to parallel that three below. So the image, the head of the body, in him all things were created, beginning of firstborn from among the dead, in him all things to hold together, the fullness of God. That's how it kind of, it's almost like verse one and verse two of a hymn. That's how people are imagining this to be a hymn. That's not little interest to many of you, but that's just why they think it is. So what are we saying? That Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, in the past he was involved in creation then, in the present he holds everything together now, and he gives life to the church. And in the future, he's the resurrection leader, and he's the one through whom all will be reconciled to God. And what Paul imagined is that you'd get hold of this idea of Jesus, and it would change the way you saw your own situation. That's what he imagined would happen. In verse 13, so in other words, 13 and 14, the verse before that hymn begins, he says, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then the way Paul flows out of the hymn is to say, now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. That final verse, that idea of standing firm, is there because Paul knows that actually apart from this good news, what are you going to hold on to? 
And this might sound a little arrogant in these days, but if you reject this, what, what are you going to take in its place? How are you going to make life a sense of life if you let go of this one? So stand firm in this, he says. Don't lose your grip on this. But then the two things, he says, is you've been forgiven and you've been made holy. You've been presented without blemish and you are free from accusation. One of the big questions that people in Paul's day had was this, and it was a really simple question. Is my life the way it is because the gods are angry with me? That's the question they, they were asking. Is my life the way it is because gods, the gods are angry with me? And they then were saying, what must I do to get the gods to like me again so that my life can change? And Paul writes into that market and goes, let me tell you a much better story. Let me tell you a story about a God who gave his own life so that you could be free, so you can be forgiven. Because actually, they in Colossae knew that actually their actions could well have made the gods angry. And that's why their life was so difficult. And they're going, how can I make it up? And Paul goes, you don't even need to begin to try. Let me tell you how it's happened. That this God came in flesh and was crucified. And in himself, he has made you holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. Now that... For anybody living in Colossae would have been like, really? So life can be different? Now in our context, I think that some people are crippled with a fear that actually I've made decisions and it's meant that that's why I'm in the situation I'm in. I think there are still people who imagine that that's how the equation with God works out. If I'd been better, God would have given me a better set of cards to play with and life would have been better. But Paul's message still holds. For some people, it's like, my life's been so broken, I don't think it could ever get back on track again. And sometimes it's because I've broken it and sometimes it's because other people have broken it. And this message still holds for you too. Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae because he wanted them to know that God has acted in Christ to make everything different. And for some people, it was like the best news they'd ever heard in their lives. And for other people, it was like, that's the news that I'm going to live my life by. That's the news around which I'm going to build my life. So for some people, they were receiving it for the first time and going, yeah, I want that. And for other people, they were going, that's what we hold to. That's what it means for Jesus to be the head of the body, the church. That's the sort of church we want to belong to. Isn't it? The sort of church that says to people, do you know what? I don't mind really where you've been or what you've done or how many mistakes you've made or how bad you think you've fouled up. We've actually got a story that tells a better end. Isn't that what a church is about? Through death, Christ 
has presented you wholly in his sight. And this can sound like sort of airy-fairy, but you know what? Some of you, some of you will know what it feels like to feel the opposite, where you feel so dirty that you think God will not have anything to do with you again. And if you know the feeling that that is, or if you can imagine how that feels, imagine how good this news is, where someone goes that in Christ, God himself has made it, so you are presented as holy. And the problem is the people who need to hear it the most are the people who can't believe it because they go, if you only knew. If you only knew. But the whole point of this is he does. He does know. Without blemish. And free from accusation. You may well have things that you need to ask forgiveness from other people from. You may have messed up really bad with other people and you may need to go to them and you may say, look, I I need to own up to some stuff here. But God never holds it against you. They may forgive you or they may not. But God never holds it against you. God never goes, oh, If only you'd been better. Do you remember when you were a kid? I don't know about you, but... um, You know when your your parents used to say, you are such a disappointment? Never happened to me, obviously. But, you know, I've read about it. It sounded like you'd you'd wish they just would rant and rave at you, didn't you? Because it's like, just rant and rave and get angry with me. That's better than just saying, you're such a disappointment. Because it's like, how do you get yourself out of being a disappointment? What's the, what's the root out of that? I know you know this. But in Christ, God never says, you're such a disappointment. You're such a disappointment. God never says that about us. For in Christ... You have been presented free from blemish, free from accusation, wholly forgiven. That's not bad news. Let's pray together. When we take this seriously, the truth is that it is so personal and it's so deep that. I, I wonder sometimes whether actually it's inappropriate to make it public by saying, is this you? So I'm not going to do, but I'm, I want you, for those of you that know some of the stuff I was saying really makes sense, for you to join me in this prayer. And it might just be because you whisper an amen at the end. But somehow you're going... Yeah, it's true, and it needs to be true for me. Father God, when we were far off, when we were enemies, when we were unsure, when we had no idea about you, 
and we were just trying to make it up as we went along. Thank you that you came and you found us. And you took us from the situation we were in and you began to breathe life back into us so we could stand as people without fear, without the fear of judgment, without the fear of being condemned, without the fear of somehow God being angry because we came to see that in Jesus everything had been dealt with. Lord, I want to pray today for those of us who might still be far off. Lord, that we would make our way back to you. I want to pray for those of us who know the feeling of having blown it so bad that we don't think you're on our side anymore. Lord, I want to pray that we would hear this good news again, that you're there for us. Thank you that through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of him, new life is ours in his name. Lord, I want to pray for all of us as the church, that we might be that sort of people, that, Lord, we might be the sort of people who don't give up on situations or people, that we might be the sort of people who are not afraid of what looks like tragedy, that we might be people who are willing to get our hands dirty and be involved in the lives of others in a way that would see new life being a possibility. Lord, may we be that sort of church. Lord, we would pray you'd entrust us with people who we could care with and for and be cared for by. Lord, that we would be richer because of that. Lord, may you be the head of our church, a church of resurrection people. May we live for your glory, we pray.